Hello, hello, and welcome to the P2P Soapbox. We are back for season two. I'm your host and P2P BFF, Marcy Maxwell, the Managing Director of the Peer-to-Peer Professional Forum. We have a great sophomore season in store for you and a rock star guest to kick things off. But first, as a professional fundraiser, do you ever feel like you are stuck playing the role of the proud beggar? Grateful for any donation, no matter the size. While that is a noble approach, it also does a disservice both to our participants and the missions that we champion, especially when the donations fall short of what is really needed. You know, why are we scared to ask our supporters for what we really need? To put the big goals out there and to ask our supporters to rise up and help us meet those big goals. You know, in the flurry of event planning, it can be really easy to forget that our peer-to-peer participants aren't just signing up to walk or ride or run. They are signing up to raise funds in support of a cause that is close to their hearts. That means it's our job to understand their goals for helping the cause. How much do they want to raise? What do they want to accomplish? And then to empower them with the effective strategies, tools, and inspiration to achieve those goals, and even to challenge them to go even further than they imagined. So I have the perfect guest to help us tackle this very topic. I'm really privileged to have Jarrett Collins, the CEO of the PanMass Challenge joining me today. The PanMass Challenge is a bikeathon that today raises more money for charity than any other single athletic fundraising event in the world. Wow. Since its inception in 1980, the PMC has raised $972 million for adult and pediatric patient care and cancer research at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute through the Jimmy Fund. And it's no surprise that the PanMass Challenge has held a prominent spot on the P2P US Top 30 list, coming in as the third largest program in the country in 2023. Now, as for Jarrett, he has been riding in the PMC since 2009. He joined the professional staff in 2019 and just recently ascended into the role as the chief executive officer. So in our conversation today, Jarrett will share how the PMC has really built this true culture of philanthropy among its riders and how they are continuously motivating them to achieve higher and higher fundraising levels including how they are leveraging a major fundraising milestone to drive support specifically in 2024. Plus, we're going to dive into some of their strategies for retention and recognition that keep writers coming back year after year. So let's jump right into my conversation with Derek Collins, the CEO of the PanMass Challenge. Jarrett, welcome so much to the P2P Soapbox. We are so happy to have you as the very first guest of season two. Marcy, it's my pleasure to be here. It's a real honor. Absolutely. Well, I I know I just gave um, the audience a very brief introduction of who you are and what the PanMass Challenge is, but 
let's just start off with with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey, your professional journey that led you to your uh, newly minted role as the chief executive officer of the Panmas Challenge? I'm, I'm happy to do so, and I'm excited to be uh, sharing whatever I've learned on that journey with uh, your audience. So I actually started my career in the event business at the Olympics, uh, right out of college in Boston. I moved out to Los Angeles to work on the 1984 Summer Olympics. And I was in charge of a system of automatic identification, basically a network of barcode scanners. And we tracked about 100,000 athletes, media, staff, and volunteers for the two weeks of the games. So it was a really, really unique first job out of college. Uh, but I was bitten by the bug in terms of the excitement that I experienced uh, bringing large quantities of people together for, in this case, a common mission, hosting the Olympic Games. After that, I actually uh, spent a few years in sales, and then I went back to school and got an MBA. Uh, I became an early stage technology investor back at the dawn of the internet, backing dozens of private companies, uh, most of which were acquired or went public. And that was great. And I loved being in that business and the intellectual curiosity that uh, I got to experience every day. But about 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to do something uh, to more explicitly give back, if you will. And so I joined Partners in Health, which is an international nonprofit. It was founded in Haiti and designed to strengthen health systems, healthcare systems around the world. It was co-founded by the legendary Dr. Paul Farmer, arguably the father of modern global health. And when I got there, uh, they weren't quite sure what to do with me, but uh, I was put in charge of special projects. And uh, pretty soon after I arrived, got a chance to write a business plan for something that became known as the University of Global Health Equity. Based in Rwanda, it was the first ever university dedicated to providing high quality health care to everyone, regardless of where they live or how much money they have. We raised $30 million from, among others, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we partnered with the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Education in Rwanda and leading international medical schools to bring that business plan to life. And we launched our first degree, pro first two degree programs, actually, and uh, built a 100,000 square foot campus in rural Rwanda uh, by 2019. So um, that was a pretty unique experience, uh, but one where, again, I got to got a chance to see what it was like to bring people together from all kinds of different backgrounds, cultures, uh, educational experiences uh, across the continents and really create this terrific public good, which is a university that we hope will live on for generations and, uh, and, and uh, help from the standpoint of social justice and healthcare. So, but after, after that, in 2019, after we opened the campus, I was recruited by the PMC, Pan Mass Challenge, to be its COO. And the goal was to bring someone in who could really help systematize and create greater innovation to continue to grow what was already a big success. The Panmas Challenge was already at that time uh, the largest in our field, uh, that is uh, the um, uh, athletic fundraiser field uh, for a single event. And uh, and the end, the end of the day, what we do, uh, which I get very excited about every day, is raise money to help fight cancer. Uh, you know, if this were raising money for its own sake, and I did plenty of that in earlier stages of my career, funding the growth of young companies, 
uh, that's one thing. But to know that the funds that you're raising, and we're Dana-Farber's largest donor every year, uh, the funds that we're raising that will help uh, treat patients and find new cures for cancer uh, is extremely motivating. Um, I'd ridden my first PMC actually back in 2009 uh, after a friend who lost her husband uh, to cancer, put a team together. And cycling had become really just a mainstay in my life after that. I probably hadn't ridden a bike for, you know, 25 years, uh, maybe since college. So uh, I've since gone on to really have it be my primary hobby and recreation. I do lots of uh, cycling trips and races each year. And, uh, and so um, the PMC has become not just a vocation, but really a passion. And now fast forward to today. So uh, after we went into and came out of the pandemic, uh, really in the good fortune for the PMC, even stronger than before, uh, I was made the PMC's first CEO in 2024. Wow. That brings us up to the present. What a journey from bark, the very sexy world of barcode scanning at an event That's to right. this global right. health initiatives, now to one of the largest fundraisers in the country. You have had quite a trajectory. Little did that, what, probably 25-year-old working for the Olympics know what was in store for him all these years later. I was 21. I was 21, actually. That's how, that's how, that's how green I was. I love it. I love it. So you've you've touched a little bit about the Pan Mass, Pan Mass Challenge and its connection to Dana Farber. Can you just share a little bit more in depth about the program? What does it look like? How did it get started? And how has it evolved over the past 45 years? Is that right? That's right. It'll be 45 years next. Uh, well, it'll be 45 years this summer, actually, um, our 45th ride. So the PMS Challenge was the brainchild of Billy Starr. Uh, he was our founder, is still our founder, always will be, and our executive director. And back in 1980, Billy was a young man trying to make sense of the early death of his mother, lost to cancer. And so he organized about three dozen friends to ride their bikes across Massachusetts and raise money, plus awareness, for what was then called the Sydney Farber Cancer Center after the founder and pioneer in cancer doctor, Sidney Farber. It's right in Boston. And as the story goes, uh, those 36 riders got lost. They ran out of food. Somehow they all made it uh, to the end of Cape Cod, 200 miles out to Provincetown. And when, got, when they got there, uh, declared that they'd had a fantastic time and they wanted to do it again next year. And, and Billy knew he was onto something. So out of that first year odyssey and the whopping $10,200 they raised, the PMC was born. Uh, by the way, the PMC set a new record this year when our 6,500 riders raised wow. $72 million. And 100% of that we passed through to Dana-Farber Cancer Center, uh, which amazing. is one of the top cancer centers in the world. So, um, you know, over, this, over the last 44 years, the routes changed. We've added a lot of options in terms of distances, where the starts are, where the finishes are. There are actually 16 different options for us in 2024, but the missions stayed the same, ending cancer uh, through Dana-Farber. And uh, you know we've added some more events over the years too, though. Um, we could talk about those in any more depth that you'd like to, but we have kids rides, series of kids rides that we do every spring, uh, a spinning event every winter at Fenway Park, uh, which is called the Winter Cycle. And two years ago, we had a gravel event in the fall called PMC Unpaved. And uh, these additional events uh, have really allowed us to 
really kind of broaden the tent, if you will, and bring in thousands more riders and, and, and participants who want to be part of the PMC's mission, but they may not identify as a road rider who wants to ride 50 or 100 or 200 miles on a weekend. Right. I always love when programs, I feel like some of the best programs start with the lore of 30 people going out for a ride and they manage to get lost and raise all this money and then seeing what it turns into all these years later. Um, Well, you mentioned your great success this past year, but y'all have a really big fundraising milestone on tap for this year's campaign. And I don't want to spoil it, but you're expected to put you over the $1 billion, billion with a B, Mark, in terms of cumulative fundraising for Dana-Farber. So what do you attribute this success to? You know, How are you leveraging this momentum for 2024 and then even future fundraising beyond that? Yeah, great question. We're very excited about this year. You know, Marcy, I think the best thing we did to reach a billion dollars was to start 44 years ago. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> seriously, you know, the, the amount uh, of money that we raise each year and, and that billion dollars that we're coming up on that we'll have raised cumulatively is actually a reflection of a community that's been built over four decades, right? Four and a half decades. And, and so, so yes, the money is big. Yes, $72 million in 2000. 23 was big, um, but it's really the commitment that accumulates, just like interest in the bank. Uh, and, um, you know, if you add to that the fact that almost all adults that I've ever met have had cancer impact them in some profound way. They've lost a family member. They've lost a friend. They've lost a neighbor. They may have themselves been diagnosed as having cancer. And it really helps that Dana Farber is, you know, really got that that high reputation as one of our top cancer centers anywhere in the world, uh, not just in the U.S. So it also helps that we have a gorgeous, exciting landscape to ride across every Sunday morning, you know, cycling through the Cape Cod National Seashore uh, in New England in summertime is about as good as it gets. And again, I'm an avid cyclist now, so I've been a lot of places. And I can tell you that's true. Um, and one thing you actually often hear PMC riders joke about, but they're not really joking, is that no one in their family is allowed to get married on PMC weekend. Uh, that's on, like that first the football weekend, weekends in the South, Jarrett. That's what happens with college football good, in the South. <laughs> you can't get married during LSU home games. Exactly. Uh, so, um, but but it's uh, it's that kind of passion, and now it is in fact multi generational. As I said, forty five years. Now you're getting into not just your kids riding the event with you, but maybe your grandkids. And now it really does start to become this intergenerational uh, movement. Um, our theme for 2024 is one, be one in a billion. Uh, so we really want to make sure that people understand this is not about coming into the PMC riding for a year and going away, right? This is about an identity that if you choose to take it on is one that basically adds you to a rich heritage of people who want to ride this event. Uh, And many of our riders stay with us for a long time, um, which I can elaborate on uh, in a bit. This year, we hope about 7,000 riders, maybe 3,500 volunteers will participate on PMC weekend and that we will cross that billion dollar uh, threshold uh, and then keep going. Um, 
I, I should add one last thing because you mentioned you asked sort of why why we've been successful to date. One of the things our riders take tremendous pride in is the fact that the PMC passes through 100 cents of every dollar straight to Dana Farber, um, and that's true for all our events. By the way, I mentioned some of the others that we do. So that 100 percent pass through, which is really the gold standard of, of P2P organizations is something that riders tell us in survey after survey um, allows them to feel great pride, but also allows their donors to feel excited about supporting them because they don't feel like uh, that's going to um, it's going to overhead or it's going to marketing costs or something else. Now, all of these people are intelligent. They know somebody has to pay for those other costs anyway. They just don't want it to be their donation. And so we do have sponsors and other ways of covering our overhead each year. So, Jared, you talk about these hopefully 7,000 participants, but what is really amazing is the amount of money that 7,000 people are raising. 7,000 is a large event, but for it to then be raising $70 million, <laughs> that's a, a lot of fundraising going on. So you, your team really seems to have created just a true culture of philanthropy among your teams, among your writers. But what's your philosophy behind that? What's your strategy behind how you are motivating them and supporting them to achieve really high fundraising levels for the industry? Yeah, so that's a great question. And and Marcy, I think it could probably summarize in, in one expression that we use uh, and it's printed on T-shirts that many of our PMC peers proudly wear. Uh, the expression is commit, you'll figure it out. Uh, this is one that Billy Starr coined over the years, and um, I think really is about as good a summary of how PMCers feel about this event uh, as I've seen. So there is this sense of deep commitment to the mission um, that drives our fundraising. Our average per rider uh, this year is going to be almost $11,000. Um, I should say in 2023, it was about almost $11,000, which is which is pretty remarkable. And And our fundraising minimums, however... This may surprise some people. Actually, are as low as a thousand dollars and as high as six thousand dollars. So, we set a bar there that was already one that was sizable for many people, especially if they're used to running five Ks locally. Maybe they have a hundred dollar fundraising request or five hundred dollar fundraising request in a big one. But in our summertime ride, we ask for as much as six thousand dollars, depending on the route you choose to ride. Now, we provide terrific email tools to make outreach and asking easier. We've got a whole suite of options for donors from Facebook fundraisers to one-click DAF donations to Venmo and, of course, the credit card transactions. And we, we're trying to meet their riders' supporters wherever they are. But our riders are very achievement-minded. So we give them some higher targets to shoot for over and above what they're required to raise. And, uh, for example, this year, over 2,100 of our riders reached our heavy hitter level of fundraising, which is $10,000. And about 650 of them actually met our top 10% level, which was $16,500. So think about that and you start to realize uh, how the pyramid is you know, sort of so substantial and solid because we're really able to drive through some friendly competition and people wanting to be in these higher clubs, higher levels of fundraising. Well, what the listeners can't see is that you are rocking a heavy hitter vest right now as I'm looking at you while we record this. So I'm guessing that that is part of the motivation, right? It's not only that you're part of this club, but there's a 
a little bit of good, good swag that comes with it as well to brag about your achievements. There is swag. And I, I do wear my, my, in this case, I think it's a 2018 uh, heavy hitter vest with pride. You know, um, here's the amazing thing. We're not, of course, trying to make this transactional. We're not going to say, hey, Marcy, raise $10,000 for us. And we're going to send you a $75 vest. Uh, this is much more about helping to reinforce the identity. So true story for $10,000 this year, our riders got customized UFO slides. They're really comfortable. Nice. Yeah. But when I tell you that in no way should be viewed as compensation for going out and raising $10,000. In fact, it's, it's to the point now where I think our riders almost chuckle when they realize how hard they have to work for a pair of, of, of flip-flops to buy, you know, uh, at the local shoe store. But again, it reinforces because they're marked as heavy hitter and marked the year that they did it. It reinforces their identity as people who really care about this mission and have that commitment. And then they see it every time they put on those pair of sandals or wear that vest and they're reminded of their accomplishment. And then they probably are wearing it around and having people ask and say, well, what does it mean to be a heavy hitter? What exactly is that? They get to talk about the pride of how much they raised. It inspires other people. So all about how you continue pushing that, you know, that snowball down the hill that started over 40 years ago with all your fundraising. So those things seem small. And I think a lot of people have real love-hate relationships with incentives and swag because of what you just defined. You don't want to make it transactional. But when they're done right they really work well to reinforce that connection, to set a high bar and really get people excited about fundraising. I think you're right. And if I could just touch on one word, it, you know, one shouldn't fetishize a particular word, but I will say that I'm not a fan of the word incentives because we're not trying to make this transactional, right? What I do yep. like is we talk about an acknowledgement, right? An acknowledgement gift or a recognition gift. Those are words we're more comfortable with. Because um, what it is, is an acknowledgement of this club that you're a part of, right? You're yep. walking around demonstrating to people this commitment you have, uh, and it's and it's part of your identity. Behind the curtain, we do a little prep call before we get on these podcasts. Um, and you talked about kind of your, the way that you look at your fundraisers. And you said you think of them as an extension of your development team in terms of how you set goals with them. Can you talk a little bit about how, you, how you've created that culture with your team captains and your fundraisers with this expectation of setting goals and achieving them and how you consider them part of your development team? Sure. So, and I should probably refine my answer and I'll do that now here on the air, uh, which is to say that we we actually don't have a development team at the PMS Challenge, um, which some people might be surprised to hear. The organization for which we fundraise, Dana Farber, uh, and for which, uh, you know, we are their largest investor or, or their largest donor, I should say, each year, uh, they've got a development team and that's fine. They can focus on prospects who don't ride bikes and are sort of, you know, um, in many cases, grateful patients for the care they've received at Dana Farber. In our particular case, uh, because we don't have a development team, we're counting on this miraculous peer-to-peer -peer funding model where people are not only supporting Marcy's ride because they like her and because she's a good person, but of course they believe in the underlying cause, uh, which is in our case, ending cancer. So, um, you know, we have, as I said, the, um, 
uh, the heavy hitter level, the top 10% level for individuals. We also have heavy hitter teams and top 10% teams. And those levels, basically, you have to have averaged $10,000 to be heavy hitter team. And you could print it up in our annual yearbook. You have to have averaged $16,500 per rider on your team to be able to get that acknowledgement. And that's printed in our handbook. And so there's a very friendly behind the scenes, I won't say competition, but striving to be on those lists. Uh, you know, we've not done things like leaderboards on the PMC website before. I think I'd probably have to learn a lot more about whether or not that really affected sense behavior. But I'm not really interested in publishing the top five or 10 or even 20 riders in terms of donation, uh, how much they've raised so far on our website because we need all 6,500 riders to show right. up. Yeah. And, uh, and we've so historically avoided things like doing volunteer of the year and that sort of thing. Because again, um, who's to say, you know, who's the most deserving volunteers? It's someone who uh, is running around looking like they're three people and uh, filling up water bottles, grilling hamburgers and, you know, pumping up bike tires all at once. Uh, or is it somebody who is um, actively in cancer treatment? but still shows up on PMS Challenge Weekend mm -hmm. and does whatever they can to support the riders. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think leaderboards, you know, they can be very motivating. Usually I kind of say the only people that really care about the leaderboard are the five people that are on it. And they just want to know what is it going to take to, I'm number three, what is it going to take to be number one? But when you're talking about an event of 6,500 people, Yes, you want to keep motivating those top five people to do more and, you know, have that positive peer pressure to to ask, make another ask. But is that the ultimate way? And is that the only way to motivate them? I think sometimes we act like that's the only way to motivate them is through competition to be number one. And so I love what you're saying that y'all do. It's more of reaching an elite level. You know, it's it's like getting your Delta silver, gold platinum medallion there's lots of people at that level but you want to reach that that level and it's important to you to hit that level so i think that's a really mm -hmm. smart approach to it so as you've said you've got six seven thousand riders each year and a lot are coming back year after year after year because of the great experience so can you talk to us a little bit about what is that average participant life cycle? How long are they sticking with you? You know, what keeps them coming back? And how are you engaging them as donors, maybe even once they leave the ride itself? Mm -hmm. Sure. So our retention rate each year, Marcy, is about 85% year on year. Wow. Uh, which we're excited about. Um, I think it speaks again to both the longevity uh, of the riders. You know, we've got, gosh, uh, we've got Riders who've been with us for, well, a few of them have actually been with us all 45 years or will have by this summer. Uh, but we have about 400 riders who have ridden the event for 20 or more years. We have almost 1,500 riders who've ridden the event 10 or more years. And the average PMC rider you know, stays with us for several years, uh, which allows them, by the way, enough time to really build up and cultivate and strengthen a donor base. Uh, and um, and then to challenge that base to help them raise a little bit more each year, which, mm -hmm. which is great. It's just the behavior that we're looking for. Uh, when riders choose to stop participating in PMC rides, many of them 
keep fundraising for us as virtual riders or as what we call reimagined riders, which is uh, frankly a designation for a rider who does have a fundraising minimum lower than on riding on PMC weekend. But it was really born from the pandemic in 2020 when we weren't able to uh, host an in-person ride. And so we were able to make lemons out of lemonade and actually keep this reimagined ride designation in place. And it's for riders who believe in the mission but don't want to ride with us or can't. Maybe it's a maybe it's a football game they have to go to or a wedding uh, on every weekend, right? So they'll ride somewhere else, and that's fine. They're still all in on the mission, and it might be a temporary designation for them one year, and then they come back and they ride in person with us the following year. But um, you know, we continue to try to engage them and everyone in our community with lots of storytelling, right? So sharing the riders' personal motivations for riding or the volunteers' personal motivations for volunteering. And we also have some great media partners uh, in both print, uh, the Boston Globe and TV, which is uh, the CBS affiliate in Boston, WBZ. So uh, it's 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 telling stories. It's throwing down the gauntlet to riders to see if they can raise a little bit more each year. Uh, and it's trying to meet them where they are in terms of how they can participate that year. Might be a reimagined ride, might be during PMC weekend. Or it might be that they've retired from riding now, but they still want to be virtual. So you also mentioned another thing you've done from an accessibility standpoint is that you're now allowing e-bikes into the ride. Can you talk about that? Because that, I think, is a really smart idea. How did that come about? So I think the truth of the matter is that the e-bikes came before we decided to let them. <laughs> yeah. So, right. uh, which is... Uh, you know, we probably for the, the uh, you know, even late teens, 2017, 18, 19, had kind of a don't ask, don't tell policy for e-bikes. Now, I need to back up and remind everyone that this is not a race. It's a ride. So it's not like there was some, uh, you know, e-bike doping going on here. Uh, <laughs> this is really all about getting from point A to point B safely and then raising as much money as possible to end cancer. Uh, so we brought on uh, basically a more formalized e-bike policy actually uh, coming out of the pandemic. And there were really two reasons for it. One, we wanted to know how much infrastructure our e-bike riders needed in terms of being supported with principally charging stations, but also even just being able to repair them on the road. Because we've got, we have about 30 vehicles roaming around on PMC weekend with medical and mechanical support. And we need to make sure that we can actually support our e-bikes because it's sort of a new type of bike with different parts. So that was great. Um, but the other thing that we wanted to do was um, really be able to make sure that um, people understood in the broader community that using an e-bike wasn't cheating, right? So we all kind of came out of the closet and we said, look, if you want to ride a class one e-bike, and there are a variety of classes of e-bike, really three principal ones, which I won't bore your listeners with, but it's the least powerful e-bike. It does provide electrical support as you're going up hills and basically it cuts off at about 20 miles an hour. So it's not like you're going to be, you know, driving down the road at, 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 uh, at highway speeds. But um, it allows people who are cancer survivors, what we call living proof riders, to participate uh, in the event at all, or maybe for longer distances than they might prefer. And it also allows us to extend the careers of some of our most valuable fundraisers who might be older, might be past our median age of 49, 
but they have um, uh, accumulated some wealth in their lives. They have friends who have accumulated some wealth in their lives. They can thus give or donate at a little bit higher level. And we want to keep them involved. Uh, again, this is all about curing cancer. The bike is a means to an end. And so the e-bike allows us to continue to be as inclusive as possible to those people who need some extra accommodation uh, to get through the day. I think that's, I just think that's a really smart assessment um, that y'all have made. So I, I am a big fan of that. So, so Jarrett, you have been with the Pan Mass Challenge for a while, but you have just officially stepped into the role as the CEO in 2024, just this month. So what would be your kind of biggest lesson learned from your time so far with the Pan Mass Challenge that you are kind of using as you step into this executive leadership position? Well, I might give you two lessons learned, if I may. Yes, uh, please. Just thinking of so one is that the PMC, and by the way, presumably any of the successful P2P fundraisers uh, among your listening audience, it's a team sport, right? I, I have and, and will continue to have a unique set of duties as the CEO, but I'm not any more important than our head of technology or our CFO or our head of operations. Um, I think of my role as almost like an orchestra conductor, right? So I've got a a group of great musicians on my team. We're about 12, 12 and a half FTEs. And I count on them to know how to play their instruments really well. My job is to coordinate how they play together so that it actually sounds like music. Uh, and that's the, that's the metaphor with which I try to kind of go about my CEO duties. I think the second key lesson though for me, and this has really been reinforced every day I've been on the staff side of the PMC, is that the PMC runs on passion. Uh, again, probably true for a lot of your listeners' events. There's nothing logical about a pmc -er taking part in the ride. They have to sign up for a year of asking people for money, a summer of training in the hot sun, a weekend of exerting themselves by you know getting up before dawn, uh, pedaling up steep hills, maybe in the rain, all for uh, an institution, a, 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 a place where cures are being developed that you or your patient may not ever experience, right? You may be planting shade trees you'll never sit under. Um, but of course, our riders and the people to participate in our events are passionate about uh, the PMC and, and the camaraderie and the ability to say, you know, F you to a disease that sicken their family members, their friends, and maybe even themselves. Um, I may not have mentioned that 10% of our riders or volunteers are that living proof designation for us. So people who have been participating even after having been diagnosed with cancer themselves. Uh, and they know they're part of something much bigger uh, than uh, just a ride. It's, it's really a mission to rid the world of cancer, which at latest count kills an estimated 10 million people a year. So this is big. Uh, it's about passion. It's not logical. Uh, and, uh, and, and we're, we're glad that's true. So Jared, I have no doubt that people are listening, are intrigued and might be thinking, I want to get involved. How could I be a writer? How could I donate? Are they hiring? Whatever they're thinking. So if there are people wondering where, where should we send them? We'll put it in the show notes. Where can people learn more? So way back in the, my first part of my career, when I was investing in internet companies, I invested in a company called um, 
future tense. It was one of the first dynamic publishing systems for the web. So my advice is go to the web, <laughs> just go to pmc.org. You're going to find out a lot about us. If you scroll to the bottom of the page, of course, you'll see little icons that show that we're on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn and YouTube. Um, come ride or volunteer with us, see what all the excitement is about on PMC weekend or in our winter cycle event that happens on March 9th or next fall in uh, the unpaved ride, which I think is September 28th. Um, or if you're local to Massachusetts, and you want to get involved in the kids rides, you can see more information about those as well. So uh, there are a lot of ways that people can kind of meet us with the various things that we do. And uh, we really rely on community support. I mean, it's all down to the riders, the volunteers, the donors, our sponsors to make this work. It's like a, a big uh, community barn raising. I love it. Well, Jared, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing all your your great experience, your great wisdom, um, and being our, our first guest of season two. We're so happy to have you. That's great. It's been a pleasure, as I said, and um, I hope you keep doing this, Marcy. I think it's a great format to help educate people in our industry. Um, I've learned a lot from listening to your other episodes and I uh, hope I've given back a little bit. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jarrett. The P2P Soapbox is produced in partnership with True Story FM, engineering by Pete Wright. Music this week is by Balloon Planet. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we hope you'll consider doing just that for our show. But the best thing that you can do to support the P2P Soapbox is simply to share the show with a friend or colleague. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.